This is the Koinos Community Church Podcast. Subscribe so that you can join us regularly as we look to find ways to close the gap between who we are and who God longs for us to be. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. But the man said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the disciples. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. So as I get older, I know some of you can identify, I, the, the, the memories start getting vague more vague, vaguer, cloudier. I had to reach out to my sisters this week. So I have a sister that's a couple years younger and a sister that's four years older than I am. I was like, did we paint, or did we paint? That's the word I use, paint. Did we dye Easter eggs when we were kids? And my older sister's like, uh, you'll have to ask Jennifer, because my younger sister's one that remembers that stuff. You know, there's always somebody probably in your family that remembers stuff, and Jennifer's the one that remembers stuff. And so we kind of just went back and forth a little bit. And the things that I remember about Easter time was that we would, we would go to my cousins or we'd get to, 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 we had several, I had lots of cousins. So we'd go to a, a set of cousins and we'd hunt eggs or we'd go to my grandparents. And, um, but did we dye eggs? And I, and my little sister's like, I remember doing it. I don't think we ever did it at our house, but we would do it like we went to, for some friends that lived in Wichita one year, and we went and dyed eggs at their house, and they had older kids, and so that was very cool because they were all older than us, and so, you know, that's kind of a neat thing. But one time we were at at my grandparents' house in Richland, Missouri, some little town kind of in the northern tip of the Ozarks, and um, we went and hunted eggs in a, in a park outside of there. It was close to their house. I don't know who put this on, but I just remember hunting egg, Easter eggs. And back then in the 70s, I don't know about you, I, well, some of you weren't even born, but back in the 70s, we didn't have, like, we didn't use, like, plastic eggs with candy in them. I mean, it was the eggs that were dyed. Like, they'd put these eggs out in the field, and we'd go collect these eggs out of the fields. Like, what am I doing this for? I'm not going to eat this. And, you know, inevitably, like, if you did it around your house, you might find one months later that didn't get picked up. That was a disaster. But the memory space, right? I enjoyed doing the Easter egg hunt, though. I love going to find those eggs, looking in trees and looking under rocks and in holes and 
all the places that you can do it. And we did it with our kids on occasion, or when they'd go visit their cousins, or the cousins would come see us. And I always loved just kind of putting them someplace where they wouldn't be able to see them, and, you know, because I'm devious like that. But it was always fun to hunt for those eggs. And so as we kind of think about this story that Carmen read a minute ago, the women went looking for something. And I was never surprised. I was always going to find some eggs. I mean, that was just part of the thing. But they got someplace that they were looking for something, and it wasn't there. And that's a little bit baffling for us. It's a little bit baffling for them. Before we get too far into it, would you pray with me? God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing in your sight and helpful to those who hear them. I pray that as we consider your resurrection, Lord, that we will be impacted by it now and into the future. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So why would they have been surprised? Partly because any other God they were familiar with wouldn't have made that kind of sacrifice. Um, They wouldn't have sacrificed him or himself for the good of humanity. I, um, so recently I've kind of been reading, like when I was in college and high school and stuff, we read, we had to read stuff, you know, and I kind of mostly skimmed it and fudged my way through. Um, but as I got older, I started reading more. And now that I'm older, I'm reading even more and kind of looking back to some of that stuff that I skipped over in high school and college that was like probably fairly important and had something to do with life in general. Because those older stories, they tend to, maybe there's some datedness to them, but they kind of tend to resonate with us. And so I, I, I read the Iliad recently. I started reading uh, Metamorphosis uh, by Ovid, like uh, the Latin version of the gods. And all these gods are just pernicious and vengeful and lustful and whimsical is not the right word, but capricious, fickle, right? They were all very much after their own good and the the things that they wanted, they wanted. And so Mary and Joanna and the other Mary and the other women that were with them, they would be somewhat familiar with these gods and how those gods operated. They were also familiar with the God that they had grown up with, the God that they worshipped, Yahweh. And their God wasn't like those other gods. Their God had suffered with them. The God these women knew had been humbling himself over and over again and sacrificing any pride or dignity in pursuit of his people for thousands of years. So by and large, God's sacrificial love was unrequited. There are stories in these, in these ancient myths um, of Ovid or of Homer of gods pursuing mortals and gods pursuing other gods and those gods not requiting that love. There's a story of Apollo. I think it's Apollo or maybe it's Apollo's son. I can't remember because there's so many names. It's like a it's like a Tolstoy or Dostoevsky novel. There's so many names, so many characters. But this God is pursuing Daphne. And Daphne has told her father she wants to be chaste for the rest of her life. She, not chaste with an E-D, but chaste. She wanted to be a virgin for the rest of her life. Okay? <laughs> she didn't want to be chaste for the rest of her life. She wanted to be chaste. Okay? And so this God is following her around, pursuing her, pursuing her. And you know at the end, I'm, I'm reading this going... This God's going to, he's going to do something bad. This is not going to be good. Because they would do things 
that they would get arrested for, hopefully, in our society. But this woman gets, Daphne gets up to close to a river, and she cries out to the god of the river, or the fawn of the river, or whatever it is, right? I, again, I'm not that great with my um, Latin mythology. But she cries out, she says, turn me into a tree. She wanted so much not to be taken by Apollo that she asked to be turned into a tree. And she is. She's, that's part of the metamorphosis. So these, there's these series of stories about these metamorphoses, these transformations. She's changed into a tree for forever. And Apollo, who has been lusting after her, not loving after her, but lusting after her, decides that from then on, all the heroes of the Olympiad or the sports and things like that, they'll make laurel leaves out of Daphne's tree. And so you have this sense of these gods are trying to do something. They're trying to tap into something, but they're not quite getting to it. They're not quite understanding what it is that God, what our God is really like. And so they do it from their own motives. They do it for their own satisfaction. And you can see in all these different stories just the sense that they never did it sacrificially. They never did, it, never did it out of humility. They always did it out of pride. They always did it out of, well, what can I get out of this? And so it's kind of surprising when these women show up looking for a body to continue pr- to prepare that body, that the body is not there. The sacrifice, as once Jesus had said, would draw all of us to him. And it did. The God that chases the mortals, those mortals all flee, except for the God that chases us. We can rest. We can know that if that God catches us, if that God has pursued us, that God is going to love us and not bring us to harm. Jesus draws all of us to him, as he said he would. And so then Joanna and the Marys, I like to call them the Marys. I don't know, that may be like a band name or something. But they went to finish the prep for the body at the tomb. It's a new tomb. And I, you know, I've been a pastor for a long time. I, it was rare for me to preach on Sunday morning on Easter because there was other people that were a lot better at that than I was. Um, so I didn't have to do this kind of preparation. But I was reading this, think, and I was thinking about this. This is a new tomb, and I was like, what's the significance of that? What they would do, they'd have this cave or tomb, and they'd place lots of bodies in there. And so they'd put bodies in there, and those bodies would be prepped, and they'd use all the ointments and the things like that so the body would deteriorate. And then later, they would go back and get those bones and bury them somewhere, put them somewhere, like either in a box or someplace that was, could be sacred for that family. And so initially, they would just put a series of bodies into a cave together. And so when it says there's a new tomb, that means the only body in there was Jesus' body. And the significance is that, of that is, if there was a lot of other bodies in there, well, which body is missing? Right? So if there's one body that was put in this tomb by itself, and then that body's not there, then we have some evidence that Jesus really wasn't in the tomb anymore. So they went to the tomb, looking for the body, to prepare the body, to finish up, to make sure everything was taken care of, so that it would do all its natural things. 
but there's no body there. And the angels weren't playing some kind of joke, like, ha-ha, kiddo, no eggs for you. Like, we could, like, tell the kids that eggs were over there, and really they're all over here. There wasn't any of that. There wasn't any sleight of hand. There wasn't anything that would, they weren't being deceptive in this. They say that he did what he said he would do. Let that sink in with us. Jesus did what he said he would do. And that's not just true of the resurrection. That's true of all the words that we have recorded from Jesus. What he said was true. It's what I encourage you guys in every week as we follow Jesus. Jesus always comes through. Maybe in unexpected ways. Maybe in ways we don't like. They didn't want their friend to die. Maybe in things that tend to prove to be difficult for us to understand. But Jesus will always remain true, even when we disbelieve. Joanna and the Marys and the other women may not have been convinced, but they shared the news anyway. And that could be true for some of us. We may have our doubts, but we can still share that news, that love of Jesus with others anyway, because we have the evidence of it in our hearts. They knew that Jesus was still by far, and he was the best option for all of them. They knew these other gods. They knew the God that they saw through the eyes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and all the other people who tried to show them who God was. They, they knew about this God. They understood a little bit about who these gods were. But this God, this God-man that Jesus was, was a different kind of God. And they knew he was the best option for them. So the Marys, they go and tell the disciples. They know these women. They've been hanging out with these women. Joanna, Joanna is a pretty, she's kind of close to Herod. Herod had what's called a steward. So a steward is kind of like, um, I don't know, a treasurer, a chief butler, somebody that really takes care of a, a person, maybe eats their, has a little bit of their food before they eat so they don't get killed. I don't know. A steward has some heavy responsibility. So Joanna was connected to Herod in that she was the wife of that steward for Herod. So she probably had a little bit of money, too. Says they, she supported Jesus. So Jesus and then Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene is in all four of these accounts. Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of the accounts, Mary Magdalene was at the tomb. And they're all a little bit different. But she's consistently there. And then you have Mary, the mother of James. So these women were known by the disciples. I mean, some of them are deeply connected, like, that's, that's your mom over here. Do you believe your mom? Hopefully you believe your mom, but your mom tells you stuff. Not everything, but most things. He, but many of the disciples dismiss the tale. They call it a tale, right? Kind of like these myths and legends I alluded to earlier. It's like, oh, that's just a story. That's whatever. I, we, we don't believe this for sure. And they probably weren't blasé about it. They were probably like, how dare you tell us that Jesus is not where he, where he, where he was put. But not Peter. He, it says he ran to the tomb. He wanted it to be true. He needed it to be true. If you're familiar with the story of Peter, he's let his best friend down. 
then that best friend dies. We've all, I don't know, we all have regrets about people who have passed on before us. We wish we would have spent more time with them. We wish we would have said this. Or we wish we would have done that. Or we wish we would have got, a, got to experience this together. Hopefully it hasn't been often for you where you have done something hurtful and had a person pass. But that's what Peter had experienced. He denied even knowing that man that they were leading to the cross. And so now when the ladies come to him and tell him he's not there, he's risen like he said he would, then Peter wants it to be true. And he's hopeful that it is. But that happens all the time. We seek out forgiveness where we can't find it. So who's absent from this scene? In this scene that Luke tells us, he's written this several years after the fact. And so I'm sure there's a, a thought process behind it. But who's absent from this scene? Jesus. If we look at some of the other accounts, we find Jesus like talking to Mary at the, at the graveside. Or Mary not recognizing him at the, grave, at the graveside. But here, there's no sign of Jesus other than those empty grave clothes. Luke lets it hang in the air, leaves some mystery, some anticipation, gives us a little bit of hope. He wrote this many years after the event. Jesus in the flesh was gone by the time he wrote this down, by the time he put this all onto paper for someone. But as readers like you and me, we wouldn't get to see the resurrected Jesus either. And I think he knew that. Like his early father's followers, we too could hold out hope. We simply, we simply have to believe. We believe what the angel said. He is not here, but has risen, just as he said he would. You know, we could get into the evidence... Um, Andy Stanley wrote a book two or three years ago called it Irresistible. And if you're interested in kind of like, is that real? Is, it, is the resurrection real? Is that a kind of the thing? If you, you look at it, if you look at that book, there's a lot to kind of give us an idea of that. And it's not just scientifically, but it's sociologically. It's the sense of, well, why would they do this and that and the other? We're not going to get into that today. But we could get into the evidence the ideas, the arguments for Jesus' resurrection. We could intellectualize it and debate its veracity, but we really don't need all that to believe. We want it to be true. In, in hindsight, it made sense to the disciples. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about, I'm going to have the, the, the group come back up here, and we're going to close out with a song here in a second. The last few weeks, we've been talking about this is the way. Jesus continued to tell his disciples, the Son of Man, me, Jesus, I am going to be handed over, and I'm going to be sacrificed, I'm going to be killed, and on the third day I'm going to rise from the dead. And they didn't get it. They just kept, either they had some kind of cognitive dissonance, or they just didn't want to believe it, or they were truly clueless. Jesus told them over and over again, 
This is how this is going to happen. And then it did. In hindsight, it's, it began to make sense to them. Over the next few weeks, we'll kind of talk about the, what happens after the resurrection, how that impacts their lives and the lives of the people around them. Explains a lot. The resurrection explains a lot about why Jesus did what he did. But it confounds us too. When we look at Jesus, we see the best life lived. Humble, compassionate, peaceful, and kind. The life he taught his disciples to live was counterintuitive, but always true. And if he can conquer death, we can surely live a life worthy of his victory. We don't have to hunt for him. We don't have to smell the vinegar of the eggs that we use to dye the eggs with. He's right here. And he is risen. Thanks for listening to the Koinos Podcast. If you like what you hear, like, subscribe, and share it. You can connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at CC and on YouTube at Koinos Community Church. Until next time, be well, do good, and love others.